Welcome to the Foodies Wasted podcast. My name is Chris King, and in this episode, I'm speaking to Travis Andrin from Seedling in Philadelphia, in the United States, an organization working on bringing efficient forms of urban based vertical farming and aquaponics into the mainstream. A lot of the focus on reducing avoidable food waste is placed in the household or changing supermarket practices, all of which are important in addressing the flaws in the current system. But what if a new agricultural system was introduced to reduce the dependency on the depleted soils of rural land, one that feeds our ever-growing cities from within the cities themselves and essentially eliminates the potential for food waste by avoiding food losses, allowing for a diversity of secondary markets, and as a last resort, say if there was a crop failure, using the food to produce energy to sustain the system. That's exactly what Seedling aims to do, to create a source of locally produced food for retailers, academic institutions, and the catering and hospitality industries with a minimal impact on the environment. The nature of this type of farming not only reduces the amount of avoidable food waste being produced, but provides a more efficient, low-impact means of feeding cities. I talked to Travis about the viability of vertical farming and the closed-loop system that he's proposing, the impact it has compared to conventional rural-based agriculture, and much, much more. It's a long interview, but there's a lot to be gained from listening to it from start to finish. So, enjoy. Yeah, uh, my name is Travis Andrew, I'm the founder and president of Seedling LLC. Uh, Seedling is, uh, is an aquaponic uh, vertical farming startup here in Philadelphia, um, Pennsylvania, within the United States. Um, a little bit of my background, um, I've got a bachelor's degree in, of science in industrial design, and I've got a master's degree in science in environmental policy management, uh, specifically focusing on energy management and sustainability. Okay, great. And can you explain a little bit about the work that uh, is done within Seedling? Absolutely. Um, so Seedling is uh, kind of a, a six-sided business structure. Uh, we use um, aquaculture. Uh, paired with vertical farming, paired with anaerobic digestion, paired with on-site uh, power generation, mm-hmm. uh, hydrogen fuel generation, and uh, hydrology, uh, kind of tying the whole system together. Right. And uh, the, the reason that we have those multiple six sides is that we are um, attempting to maximize on the synergistic relationships between them, mm-hmm. uh, wherein, uh, for example, the nutrient transfer between aquaculture and vertical farming uh, the nutrient transfer between anaerobic digestion and vertical farming, the biogas transfer between uh, anaerobic digestion and the on-site uh, energy system, and then our on- on-site energy system also produces hydrogen as a byproduct. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we we utilize that for a zero emissions uh, delivery service of uh, of crops to uh, to our customers. Okay, but uh, is it is it kind of a closed? Um, loop or are you dependent on any sort of inputs? Um, so we are, we strive to close as many loops as we can. Uh, mm-hmm. So uh, starting with water, for example, uh, recycling the water from the aquaculture uh, to the vertical farm and back. Um, another element to that is that the, uh, the fuel cell vehicles actually produce water as a byproduct. Mm-hmm. And the intent is to capture that water and uh, inject it back into the system. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is not a fully closed looped uh, hydrology system because the plants do ha- require um, a certain amount of water that actually goes into the biomass of the plant. Right. However, uh, we do try to recycle as much as possible. Mm-hmm. On the nutrient side of things, um, 
between the anaerobic digestion system and the aqua aquaculture system, we are trying to reduce as much of a nutrient input as possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, not completely closing the system, but but getting much closer. Right. Uh, on the on the energy side of things, uh, as the uh, in a grander scale, as the biomass from the plants themselves feed the anaerobic digestion system that produces the biogas, which is then essentially methane or natural gas, mm-hmm. which is then used by the uh, the energy system to power the lights to grow the plants, which then come back in. So on, on a larger scale, we're trying to close that energy loop mm-hmm. uh, through the embedded energy in the plants. Okay. When you compare this kind of uh, system to, you know, so an urban-based um, circular system with all these elements kind of uh, hopefully working in synergy and with minimal external inputs, how, how does that compare to the conventional rural-based farming methods in terms of efficiencies? Sure. Um, you know, th- there are a lot, of, um, a lot of citations floating around about uh, a 70 to 90, sometimes 95% reduction in water use. Uh, but when you look at truly what the impact of that is, is, is not just the water use itself, it's the, the effects of the water on the land. So the runoff, um, the avoidance of drought, mm-hmm. um, the, the manipulation of, of fertilizers and chemicals, pesticides, herbicides, fungicides. Um, you know, vertical farming has the opportunity to, uh, to conduct near elimination uh, practices of using those chemicals. And then what we strive to do, as I mentioned, is to reduce the inputs of fertilizer and and approach that from a much more natural and and idealistically organic Mm -hmm. uh, system. Um, The other thing that it does is uh, is the localization of crop production. So Mm -hmm. in the United States, nearly 50% of our vegetable imports come from Mexico. The average piece of produce in America travels uh, an estimated 1,500 miles to reach the plate of the consumer. Mm -hmm. And so uh, by centralizing uh, urban agriculture, in the condensed uh, urban areas, we are reducing that food mileage. Uh, and I, seedling wants to reduce it down below 300 miles. Mm-hmm. Um, the the kind of the barometer or the baseline for our system is that um, we want to deliver only the distance that our fuel cell vehicles can go on a single fill-up. Mm-hmm. So uh, many of the fuel cell vehicles these days are traveling upwards of 300 miles on a full tank. And so as a round trip uh, delivery, that's about 150 mile radius yeah. around each seedling location. And that's kind of what sets our distance. We, we want to, um, we're trying to create the most sustainable um, triple bottom line s- solution that we can. Mm-hmm. And with that, we aren't looking for uh, long distance exportation of our crops. We're really trying to serve the localized market as much as possible. Yeah, okay. I suppose ironically, the Trump administration is actually going to be looking at that in a positive light, you know, to, to reduce the dependency on uh, south of the border for food. Yeah, um, you know, it, there's there's kind of a, an interesting balance there uh, in terms of, you know, this this nationalism that, mm. that the administration wants to go for um, and how that does uh, play into uh, ecological Mm-hmm. Uh, benefits, mm-hmm. Uh, but then yet on the other side, you know, he's essentially dismantling the EPA, yeah. uh, the Environmental Protection Agency, mm-hmm. and so um, you know there there are interesting conversations about the federalism aspect of that and what happens when you take those uh, regulatory systems and bring them down to the state level. Mm-hmm. Uh, my personal opinion is that there's a lot of potential for disaster and uh, 
inefficiency, mm-hmm. um, especially when you look at non-point source solution that can transfer, you know, over st- over state lines, mm-hmm. uh, such as air quality, water quality, things like that. And yeah. then you you essentially what happens is it, it ends up in litigation and people end up getting hurt. So mm-hmm. uh, I, I'm quite concerned about that as a citizen of the country, uh, mm-hmm. but I am hopeful that. Um, that the administration's approach to nationalism will encourage and, and further grow the idea of circular economic models. Mm-hmm. So and we'll see were, what happens. Yeah. <laughs> and, and you were saying before, before we started um, recording for the podcast, you were mentioning that you're, um, that there is actually a, a, an interest in the circular economy and developing that at a federal level. Is that absolutely yeah. the, um, the federal chamber of commerce, um, has, has kind of uh, released a press release on this program called Beyond 34. And uh, what that is referring to is the amount of uh, recycled um, recycled content that is reclaimed in the in the atmosphere itself. And it, it really kind of rarely breaks 30, 33 to 34%. And so what they're looking at doing is, is kind of going beyond that 34 metric. And so mm-hmm. uh, some major retailers, Walmart, Target, uh, along with Dow Chemical and others, are um, kind of contributing to this Beyond 34 program uh, to help promote circular economies. Um, there have been a lot of studies done in the past couple of years that, that have identified that there are trillions of dollars locked up in inefficiencies of non-circular systems. Right. Uh, and so uh, what what Seedling wants to do is, you know, if, if I had my way, we'd have a Seedling location in every major city in America. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The unique thing about Seedling uh, is, is beyond what it is from a functional standpoint, is also the business model and structure itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Seedling is actually part of a three-tier business structure. Um, I own another uh, LLC called D3 Designs. It's an Arizona-based LLC, and they own Seedling. And then each Seedling location is going to be its own LLC, mm-hmm. wherein for, 40% of each location will be owned by uh, local investors, the local municipality, um, and, and maybe even someday to, to local citizens themselves. Mm-hmm. And what that intends to do is really kind of drive the seedling model down into each community level, uh, providing uh, not only jobs and localized food production, but also returns on investment to the local economy itself. Mm-hmm. And so from a circular sense, not only do we take in uh, you know, feedstock for the anaerobic digestion, removing that from the landfill waste stream of the local environment, growing local food for the local people and providing localized jobs. But we also return uh, the, the investments back to the municipality, the city mm-hmm. and or local developers to help grow the, the economy. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of why um, why the we think that the the seedling model is is perfectly fit for the Chamber of Commerce's intentions to help drive circular economies. Mm-hmm. OK, and, but in, in terms of the practicalities of actually feeding um, a major city through this yeah. <laughs> through this method, you know what are I, I'm sure access to to land and um, even if it is vertical farming, still having that access to land within a, an urban environment is going to hinder scalability. Is yeah. Um, so so one of the things we've definitely been run, running into is um, is that vertical farming as a whole, especially when you add on all the other elements that Seedling proposes, mm-hmm. has really high upfront capital costs. Mm-hmm. And um, that's one of the things that when you compare it to uh, geoponic or soil-based farming um, that you don't see in, the, in their models. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what, that, what people don't 
recognize in America is that um, the uh, the USDA has uh, has a program around crop insurance, for example. Yeah. yeah. And in uh, in the year 2012, uh, the USDA paid out nearly seven billion dollars to farms across America because of their failing crops. Wow, and awesome. uh, and that revenue is is paid out to farmers to keep them in business so yeah. that the American food supply can exist. Mm-hmm. Um, that's something that uh, vertical farming won't have to incur as a federal cost. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, w- especially when you when you can produce your power on site and you aren't affected by uh, the instability of the electrical grid. Mm-hmm. Um, the opportunity to have a crop failure is significantly reduced in a vertical farming atmosphere. Mm-hmm. So we look at it as, you know, it's it's part of a, a greater economical solution, and mm-hmm. and that is intended to, over a longer period of time, offset some of those capital costs, gotcha. especially yeah. if we can get into the state level and, and, and start to tap into some subsidies to install these systems. Mm-hmm. That being said, um, you, you do bring up a great point about um, land restrictions. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things where, you know, we're really inspired by these containerized farming companies like Grotainers or Freight Farms or or Modular Farms coming out of Canada Mm -hmm. um, and their opportunity to uh, create a high production dense farming system in a very small footprint. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's that's really inspiring and it's great to see that they're um, that they're bringing about a whole new generation of, of farmers that don't have to necessarily live outside the city. They don't have to remove themselves from the culture that they enjoy um, mm-hmm. to kind of go live in, in a vast field and to tend to the field every day. Yeah. yeah. Yep. So we see a lot of a lot of hope and potential. And, and I definitely don't believe that that one company is going to be able to feed an entire city. Uh, that's mm-hmm. that's not really Seedling's approach to this. Mm-hmm. Uh, what we aim to do is actually we're targeting more um, a business to business structure. So we want to grow food for restaurants. We want to grow food for institutions such as academic institutions, hospitals, things like okay. that, mm-hmm. uh, and and for localized grocers and co-ops. Mm-hmm. Um, right. So we, we just want to be able to provide a localized uh, and ideally organic option for consumers to select. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, so you're mentioning about kind of wanting to do business to business rather than business to consumer. Um, so what impact do you feel seedling will have in terms of access to greater diversity of food and better quality food creating or participating in creating a more equitable food system well let, let me start with the the restaurant the topic that you kind of that you that you addressed um the inspiration behind seedling actually came from a an interview that the national the npr our national public radio system had mm-hmm. with a founder of a um a chain of fresh salad companies uh they, they make on-demand salads and uh, they tout that they that they don't have a commissary in each uh, in each restaurant, meaning that they don't they don't refrigerate their produce for a long period of time. They bring it in fresh every day. Mm-hmm. And the the interviewer asks the the founder of this company, well, what about you know Boston in the winter? Where do they get their produce? And and he admitted he he says you know it comes from California in that mm-hmm. instance. And you see a lot of this in in the restaurant industry of um, these farm to table models that in especially in the northern states when the weather turns to winter mm-hmm. the entire farm to table story becomes a farce it's a mm-hmm. myth mm-hmm. Um, all of that is is transitioned either either the menu is significantly reduced down to what can be localized and mm-hmm. what can be going grown in a greenhouse mm-hmm. or um, it's just kind of blanketed over and imported from a warmer state 
Um, so that's one of the things that really kind of drove me to say that there's a better solution. Uh, the other side of it is when you look at uh, vertical farming today, um, the reason I created seedling as a, as the six-sided structure, I really approached this from the energy side, which is the number one line item in the cost of a vertical farm in operation is their energy uh, for the for the, the artificial lighting systems. Mm -hmm. And what my what I intend to do is to uh, because we create our, our energy on site from a waste stream is to drop that cost so significantly that I will be able to offer a broader portfolio of crop species, uh, meaning I don't have to focus only on the high value species such as microgreens and herbs and basil and things like that. Mm -hmm. I'll be able to offer a broader portfolio, including things like tomatoes, berries, cucumbers, peppers, these, th these crops that are able to be grown hydroponically, mm -hmm. but because of business economic models often are not uh, on a production scale. Mm -hmm. And so because of that, what I want Seedling to be able to do is to offer a broad range portfolio that can be tailored by our customers uh, to suit their needs when they want. Um, one of the things we offer is, is plots within a Seedling location, mm -hmm. and that's for restaurant tours to lease a plot throughout the year. Um, and then they will have they will be informed as to when their species is reaching maturity mm -hmm. and when that that plot of area is going to be able for replanting and they can select the next species that will go in there. Mm -hmm. So they'll have an opportunity to plan their menus ahead of time um, to kind of keep up with the the uh, availability of the crops that we're growing and break the seasonal boundaries that are otherwise inherent to agriculture itself. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that's one of the reasons, one of the ways that we're trying to do that. Um, as I mentioned previously, also, Seedling's entire goal is to is to focus on the triple bottom line of people, mm -hmm. planet, and profit. Mm -hmm. And so, um, from the planetary perspective, obviously, we're trying to reduce CO two emissions by using high efficiency energy, by taking that that um, organic municipal waste out of the landfill stream and using it as a biogas solution, mm -hmm. and then internalizing our our, our controlled environment agriculture. Uh, to reduce the chemical inputs and reduce the fertilizer inputs um, to to provide a healthier solution to our customers. Mm -hmm. And then based on the economic model of the entire company, bringing this uh, agricultural system into the local location, feeding the people locally and providing jobs locally is really kind of at the heart and soul of what Seedling is meant to represent. Mm -hmm. Okay. But uh, you mentioned that uh, the likes of Walmart are actually interested in, in exploring... Um, closed loop systems and, and yeah. embracing the circular economy as a means of minimizing um, wastage or, or I suppose maximizing profits really. Um, yep. With this method and what you're proposing, would that not meet with resistance from the supermarkets because, uh, it's, because it's challenging their kind of the, the status quo and, and the system that they've ultimately engineered. Um, yes and no. Um, I mean, if, if you look at Walmart, they are, they're the number one seller of organic produce in America mm -hmm. uh, and by volume. Mm -hmm. And that, and the, one of the reasons is, is, is um, and, and it's funny because I used to work for an organization called the sustainability consortium. Okay. Uh, and they're, they're a, a non, an NGO a non-government organization and their number one client when I was working for them was Walmart. Right. And Walmart realized a, a while back that they really had a bad, uh, a public image, and they really needed to address sustainability because they realized that at the scale that they are, when they make a move in the positive direction, it's a mm -hmm. giant move. Mm -hmm. It has a gr has a significantly great impact. Mm -hmm. And so they they signed up with the sustainability consortium. And at the time, I was working with them. Then, uh, one of the lessons Walmart also really I believe has learned over time is that um, 
they aren't local to anywhere. Um, you know, if you if you were if you visit Bentonville, Arkansas, which is where the headquarters are, you might be able to say that Walmart is local to Bentonville. But mm-hmm. in all reality, it's like Starbucks being local to Seattle. It's mm-hmm. not true. Yeah. And um, I think that they would like to help change that image. Mm-hmm. And so you see, uh, for example, Walmart stores being scaled down to kind of create more of a, a localized market model. Okay. And with that, I would I would foresee, and I don't have any evidence for Walmart on this, but I would foresee in the future that they may want to start sourcing locally and kind of driving their their business model back down to local economies. Okay. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons that they've realized that there's so much potential in circular economic models. Mm-hmm. Okay. But then, you know, what what impact do you think this would have on the rural environment? Then the the rural kind of um, ecology and, and, yeah, communities? Sure. Uh, so when you look at, uh, for example, the uh, the fuel subsidy systems in America, you know, there, were, there, are, um, there are mandates in place saying that a certain amount of our fuel needs to come from renewable sources. Mm-hmm. And for a long time, that's been ethanol. And there's a significant um, negative effect on the soil quality and land quality mm-hmm of growing a monoculture crop species time after time on the same amount, on the same soil. Yep. Uh, basically what happens is it depletes the soil of the same nutrient content over and over. And so then you artificially sub uh, artificially fill that soil with new nutrients of the same variety. Mm-hmm. And it just happens over and over and the soil becomes depleted and then you get water runoff issues and a variety of other uh, environmental concerns. Mm-hmm. Um, what I would like to see is I would like to see a lot of our agricultural land that has been, for lack of a better word, abused over time to be kind of reclaimed, if mm-hmm. possible. Mm-hmm. Um, I would like to see uh, governmental and, and maybe uh, either state or federal governmental uh, subsidies to kind of give this land an opportunity to kind of recharge itself and rebuild itself through natural systems. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we've been manipulating these croplands for so long and they've been so beaten down that they kind of deserve a break Mm -hmm. if you would yep that being that being said um i i do not want to spur a battle between controlled environment agriculture and geoponic agriculture specifically Mm -hmm. for the reason that coming out of our anaerobic digestion system is a a a solid-based fertilizer and we want to partner with geoponic farms by providing them with fertilizer and in exchange, uh, maybe they provide us with food for the aquaculture system mm-hmm. or, or something along those lines. Yeah. Uh, I would like to see much more of a synergistic relationship. The other side of it, too, is there are crop species that don't bode well in uh, controlled environment, agricultural, vertical farming specifically. Mm-hmm. Uh, crop species like cereal grains and things like that, that uh, your root vegetables that really do better in a, in a geoponic environment. Mm-hmm. So there will always be a need for soil-based farming. Um, you know, hydroponics and aeroponics can't replace everything. Mm-hmm. Um, so th- I think that there will be more of a balance. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, as, as Dixon Pommier says, you know, um, agriculture has been reinvented six times in history. Mm-hmm. And so um, who's to say that we're, we're going to stop the evolution of this practice? Right. So. Yep. And um, you mentioned subsidies both for you know, moving forward and, and allowing for the reclaiming of this land um, in rural areas and, yeah, just helping to, to rejuvenate it. But then also um, earlier you mentioned the subsidies that are currently in place um, for crop failure. Yes. Um, 
what what do you think needs to happen for legislation to catch up with um, introducing, supporting, nurturing, and, and helping to to grow um, a circular economy and closed loop systems? Sure. I mean, as as we see uh, vertical farming and, and controlled environment, I'll, I'll bucket controlled environment agriculture being greenhouses as well. Mm-hmm. As we see these grow in popularity and shift some of the market away from geoponic uh, agriculture into more of a localized agriculture. Um, I think that the states, uh, the, lo- the local economies will definitely adapt, and I hope that the states will adapt as well, recognizing that you know each year uh, they are some states more than others are paying out this crop insurance uh, dividends out to farmers. And as CEA and vertical farming uh, kind of shift, that that burden off of the the state and, and eliminate it in general by taking more of a market share. I, I would hope that there is more of a subsidy uh, from from state and local governments to uh, promote more and a greater installation of these vertical farming systems within the local munici- municipalities. Mm-hmm. Um, that will help. Uh, eliminate some of the upfront capital costs that a lot of your venture capitalists and private equity firms have a really hard time uh, navigating in terms yeah. of, of their return on, on investment mm-hmm. models. Uh, and it's funny because I know that you had asked me um, about uh, in my introduction video for seedling, I actually mentioned um, revenue being uh, being kept in a federally insured bank. Mm-hmm. And uh, that that is my kind of a sidelined uh, response to the cannabis industry. Uh, so right now in the world of vertical farming, investments, and, and venture capitalism, um, there's a lot of push whenever you approach a VC saying that you're a vertical farm that they ask if you're going to grow cannabis. Right. And <laughs> because it's a, it's, it's a significantly profitable crop. I mean, right. we're talking yeah. upwards of, of 10 to 14x what mm-hmm. other species can can pull in the market, right. and so um, in the United States, uh, although some states have legalized it, it's still a federally uh, illegal substance, mm-hmm. and so the revenues generated from those uh, from those practices can't be kept in a federally insured bank mm-hmm. because it's essentially illegal drug money. Yeah, yep. and so um, basically to ease the concerns of any investors, I made that statement in my pitch video, mm. uh, saying that until that changes we're going to hold true and not grow that crop species as a seedling brand. Mm-hmm. Now, that's not to say that we won't uh, prove our technology in that industry because mm-hmm. um, sometimes we need to prove that the synergies are um, are executable beyond mm-hmm. uh, what we've theorized in plans. Mm-hmm. And so if that requires a partnership with a, uh, a potential cannabis or, or a medical marijuana farmer, mm-hmm. uh, we may explore that. But yeah. as a seedling brand, we are here to grow food for the population. Mm-hmm. Okay. And you mentioned uh, forming partnerships with grocers and markets. Um, I assume to, t- uh, to obtain food for anaerobic digestion. Mm-hmm. Um, so what impact do you feel that that might have on the rescue and redistribution of food um, that could be used to feed people who um, are suffering from food insecurity? Sure. Um, so we have been in talks with a number of uh, of organic fractu- fractionated waste. Uh, muni- I'm sorry, organic fractionated municipal solid waste uh, collectors. When I say that, I'm organic means plants. Fractionated means it's it's uh, it's di- it's divided up 
so you won't get any like yard clippings. Okay. This is all uh, food waste coming from grocers and restaurants mm-hmm. and um, municipal solid waste, meaning that it would ne- it would otherwise go into the municipal waste stream. So what they do is um, they actually pre-sort. Um, so they will work with uh, food banks and other food processors to uh, to reclaim uh, food that is not saleable um, in the in the grocer itself, but mm-hmm. still has uh, has edible value to it. And sometimes they'll process that into juices or repackage it into into processed food, things like that. Um, they'll also uh, work with localized um, shelters and things like that to provide uh, meals for the homeless. And so, so our um, our partner in this is is actually conducting this practice pre uh, waste stream. Uh, so then, what they do is they will grab uh, food that's already decomposing, um, and then there's other uh, other plant other parts of the plant that are non edible. For example, if you take a tomato plant, you know only really kind of the tomatoes themselves are sought after, and the rest of the plant is just discarded. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something that can be discarded into our anaerobic system. Mm-hmm. And can then be be reprocessed back in. So we we are uh, actively selecting uh, municipal solid waste providers that um, take the conscious approach to address the 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 hunger concerns and food concerns of the community first, mm-hmm. and then we want to claim that the waste after that process. Mm-hmm. Okay. So obviously that'll help reduce the amount of um, unavoidable food waste heading to landfill or or some other. That um, that is one one aspect of it, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, the other aspect of it is is simply the relationship between a globalized food system. So, for example, produce being picked uh, before it's ripe, uh, mm-hmm. so that it can survive transport to ship uh, thousands of miles away and arrive in an American grocery store. Mm-hmm. Um, so th- there's a lot of waste that happens in that system. Um, I mean, and and then restaurants, for example, you know, they'll they'll take in boxes of produce. And they'll sit in their in their garmage cooler, and um, for the same reason, it's been traveling for such a distance, and and it's either not ripe yet, or it was picked too late, and it and it arrived damaged. Mm-hmm. And so there's a waste stream that is often unaccounted for there, mm-hmm. uh, that providing local, uh, ready to pick ripe produce. Uh, will inherently reduce that waste stream. Now, that's not necessarily coming back into our system. Mm. It's just a, an efficiency of localizing and, and controlling the environment of the agricultural system so that you can pick right when the produce is ripe and ready. Mm-hmm. So do you have any statistics in terms of uh, the potential positive impact on reducing, say, avoidable food waste through um, losses at the farm or avoidable um, waste at the farm due to cosmetic standards by the supermarkets. You have, have not, sort of not, not in terms of tonnage. Um, I really focus um, our statistical statistical analysis around uh, around emissions. As I said, I, I kind of approach this from the energy side of things. Right. Okay. And so what I look at is. Um, the emissions of, of methane decomposition of organic matter mm-hmm. and um, essentially diverting that out of the landfill stream and, and back into our anaerobic stream. Mm-hmm. Uh, part of that is that those emissions uh, equate to the biogas that we're going to process. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, I look at I look at those emissions paired with the emissions of our energy system. We're looking at uh, high temperature fuel cells and how that compares to utility energy power. Mm-hmm. So if I were, uh, for example, one of the biggest uh, – 
vertical farms in America is, uh, is Arrow Farms. They're, they're in Newark, New Jersey. And uh, they have a, a very large operation. And I don't know their entire energy profile, but you could uh, you can forecast that if they were getting their energy from the utility grid, and the utility grid is made up of either natural gas, coal, or nuclear uh, power generation, what I model is, is my system against those systems. Mm -hmm. In terms of understanding the environmental impact of uh, of a per kilogram, for example, of lettuce, mm -hmm. uh, of, of a per kilogram CO2 output per uh, per year, mm -hmm. um, and and how I compare it to the other utility, mm -hmm. uh, and and from the models that I've looked at from various fuel cell, fuel cell suppliers such as Doosan or uh, Fuel Cell Energy, you know their emissions are a fraction of what's coming out of a, a natural gas power power plant in America. And so, I mean, it's on a, on a per kilogram basis, it's, it's quite, quite reduced. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, but in terms of, of the diversion from the, from the food stream, uh, I think that's something that as we get more operational, we're going to start to understand yeah. uh, more often. Yeah. And it also, it also depends, you know, I mean, if I'm sourcing agriculture uh, within my local county here in Pennsylvania, or even within the state versus coming from South America or, or overseas, there's a there's a greater impact. Yeah, um, definitely. Yeah, yeah and yeah. that's you know that's the, one of the reasons that we want to broaden our portfolio is mm -hmm. I would love I would love an opportunity to hydroponically grow saffron, for example, mm -hmm. uh, which is which is a crop that is not grown in America quite often at all. Right, and okay. if I if I could do that to tailor to the uh, to the Indian cuisine restaurants in the region mm -hmm. uh, and provide them with, you know, various species of saffron, mm -hmm. then I'm, I'm really kind of providing an optimized service. Mm -hmm. And because my cost structure is reduced so much compared to the competitor, mm -hmm. I might be able to kind of broaden my portfolio to that to that species. Um, what I'm going to ask won't um, won't apply to saffron, but. Um, it would to uh, the likes of lettuce and and um, root vegetables and, and things like that. And that's about cosmetic standards. So that's something mm -hmm. obviously that is um, applied by supermarkets at present um, and dictates what's on the, the shelves and what um, the consumer has access to. And there's a push here uh, in Europe for what's termed wonky fruit and veg to be yeah. embraced once more as it as it used to be yes. um, pre-supermarket era um, I assume that's still something that would have to be overcome um, with your model with this with this approach you know you're not going to have aesthetically perfect fruit and veg it's still gonna there's still going to be some sort of need for a culture shift in terms of em embracing the fact that that fruit and veg just naturally are not necessarily aesthetically perfect is that sure would that be true um so it's funny you mentioned that and your your timing is poignant uh paul hardage actually was set on a panel he was he was the um the ceo of farm here which was a large vertical farm in chicago that actually closed down a couple months ago mm -hmm. and he was at, on a panel at aglanta um i believe a week or two ago kind of talking about that and talking about how the market shift in america um, how a lot of people think, uh, for example, in the species of Boston bib lettuce, mm -hmm. um, a lot of people think that a, a big, a bigger head is is more ideal because there's more biomass and more edible biomass. But consumers are actually uh, gravitating towards a smaller leaf, mm -hmm. and so there's kind of this adaptation that's happening within controlled environment agriculture that you can um, you can kind of start to tailor off and uh, and pick the the lettuce heads. Uh, 
at a certain point in their growth to adapt to the demands of the market. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing about this too is that um, I, I, I actually really embrace the, the we the quote unquote ugly food movement. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you look at um, some of the other trends that are happening around things like juicing or uh, pre-made salads, bag salads, and things like that, I think that there's a there's a number of alternatives, especially mm-hmm. around leafy greens, yep. that you can uh, that you can take when you don't have kind of the showpiece of produce. Mm-hmm. Um, you can either process that in, you know, sell it to a, a bagged lettuce producer and they will process it and chop it down. Um, or you could sell it to a localized juice company and they'll juice it and, and things like that. So I think that there are, um, a number of, of opportunities to kind of, uh, still dr- derive value from that, from those ugly pieces of produce. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in our system, you know, if, if, for example, we have a complete crop failure, uh, for whatever reason, you know, if, if there were, um, an interference of you know fungus or something like that, then um, essentially our crops can go back into the digester. Uh, mm-hmm. That's kind of the last resort, right? Yeah. So so ideally, sell it as a as a as a prized piece of produce. Uh, second to that, sell it to a a, a food processor that's going to chop it down, where appearance doesn't matter as much. Yeah. Uh, third from that, sell it to a juicer, and fourth from that, uh, maybe sell it as uh, as feed livestock feedstock. And then maybe fifth from that, it ends up in the anaerobic digester. Hmm. And I suppose because of your proximity to uh, potential buyers, then you can kind of access those different uh, markets. Unlike a, unlike somebody in a rural environment who's you know hundreds and hundreds of kilometers away from all that diversity of potential exactly. markets, you know where they're dependent on maybe one. Um, one buyer, a supermarket, and that's it, and, and they don't have the opportunity to diversify because of their, their uh, location. So I suppose exactly. that's, that's one of the benefits of this model is that that proximity means that with ease you can, you can have access to these different markets and therefore minimize uh, potential waste. And then obviously if there is waste, then it just is fed back into the system. Right. You know, and, that, and that's something that um, I've, I've kind of written on before is uh is this idea of embedded energy right mm-hmm. so yeah. um I, I talk about kind of uh removing the word waste from vocabulary mm-hmm. yeah. and what that means is that uh whenever we make anything you know whether that's an injection molded plastic part for something or if we grow up a piece of produce uh there's an embedment of energy within the processes that we that we conduct and mm-hmm. and the the materials that go into it and things like that and I think that there, when you shift your attention to recognize that more, um, there will become more opportunities to kind of reclaim that embedded energy. Mm-hmm. So uh, I just gave you, you know, a kind of a, a life cycle of five different opportunities to yep. to reclaim a piece of ugly produce, yep. and none of them include throwing it out. Oh, yeah. um, even the anaerobic system is it's just converted back into energy and fertilizer. And kind of fed back into the system. Um, I, I have a uh, coming from a product design background. I have a pretty strong belief that eventually we're going to end up mining our landfills for quote unquote non-virgin materials. Mm. Uh, you know whether that's recycled plastics or whatever. Because when you look at the at the generation of, of polymers and their tie to fossil fuels, which which is ninety percent, ninety plus percent of all plastics in the world are. Mm. are are uh, are oil based. Hmm. There's going to come a time when we're going to be seeking out 
wherever this material still exists and whether we we mine the oceans which i hope we we pull it all out of the oceans uh or we mine existing landfills for non-decomposed plastic that we can then reprocess and and turn into a valuable good again Um, i think that we're going to end up reaching that point when it happens is up for debate but um i think taking that model and applying it now to organic materials um such as biomass and and anaerobic feedstocks and things like that, we have an opportunity to kind of um, close some of those loops again, uh, mm-hmm. whether those are nutrient loops or energy loops, um, and, and derive value from something that's for so long just been viewed as a waste. Do you feel hopeful that this will actually come about under, under the current political environment, um, yeah, yeah. both in the yeah. US and, and globally, you know, here in Europe, you've got the Brexit, and the consequences of that, and then increased nationalism across uh, Europe. You know, that's, sure. that just means that um, people's kind of focus and attention is elsewhere, and 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 then also the fact that climate change is very present and it, it's it's having an impact um, in some places more than others already. But yet, there's still not meaningful action being taken. So, you know, obviously. <laughs> Obviously, what you're providing, what you're bringing to the table has a huge amount of potential. But do you feel that under the current circumstances, it's something that is actually going to be picked up and and nurtured? Sure. Um, So I've been studying fuel cell technology since about 2012, uh, a Mm -hmm. couple of years professionally, another couple of years in academics. And um, whenever I talk about fuel cells, uh, specifically high temperature fuel cells that can uh, take uh, hydrocarbons as an input, mm-hmm. um, whether that be um, you know natural gas, propane, diesel, butane, JPA, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, when you look at those and you look at the efficiency of the of the systems, that's kind of when you cross what we say cross the aisle in mm-hmm. America. You cross the political aisle, and you you can talk about environmental impact. But you're you're going to kind of close off an audience when you do that, mm-hmm. uh, because there are capitalists out there who really um, are focusing on the bottom line yeah. and 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 things like that. One thing that does re- relate to nearly everybody is the sense of efficiency, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. even the most capitalistic person in the world understands efficiency because they don't want to see money lost. They yeah. don't want to see money wasted. Yep. Well, us as a as a society, a global society. Uh, for example, with the use of internal combustion engines, we have been uh, living at this below 33% efficiency for so long mm-hmm. and enabling uh, organizations like OPEC and the fossil fuel industry to kind of live this fat cat lifestyle mm-hmm. where they can just dump their product into the marketplace and it's gobbled up and nobody is the wiser. Mm-hmm. Well, when you start to introduce uh electrical efficiency solutions that exceed 60%, 70%, even 80% efficiency, Mm -hmm. all of a sudden it changes the portfolio of that hydrocarbon industry. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, you can, you can view it as we're going to prolong your portfolio because at a certain point you're going to run out of of stock and, or you're going to be legislated into renewables. Mm -hmm. Um, Or you can look at it the way I, I prefer to look at it as, Let's shift to something that something that's more uh, universal, such as hydrogen, 
or even elect- electrons as themselves um, in, in, in terms of battery, electric, or whatever you want to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and let's just find a way to help uh, kind of redefine what energy storage is mm-hmm. and and increase efficiencies because at the at the end of the day, an inefficient system is not profitable. Mm-hmm. It's not good for the environment, um, and it's definitely not equitable. And so I think that's that's where you can take the conversation and you can cross the political aisle and you can say, listen, we're going to offer a solution that is cost effective, uh, opens up a new market opportunities, opens up new innovation opportunities and technology opportunities. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, we're going to have a positive environmental impact. Mm-hmm. So it's a win for everybody. And I think that that's where a, a company like Seedling has an opportunity to kind of address all political spectrums. To say, not only are we going to grow local and produce local and deliver local, yep. but we're going to do it with a a, a higher efficiency energy system mm-hmm. and a lower environmental impact. In terms of the the food system in its current form, you know, which is hugely inefficient and hugely flawed, why why do you feel that it's been sustained for so long? Why, when there has been this knowledge of, of its inefficiencies and the knowledge and the technology has been there, um, but Yet there hasn't been that that push um, to minimize waste and increase efficiencies. Why? Why do you feel? Sure, that is? So it's it's funny that you say that the technology has been there um, the in some form, to, at least in some form. Right. You know. Right. Yeah. The, yeah. the ability to grow crops in a controlled environment, such as a greenhouse, has been there. You know, ever mm. since the Crystal Palace at the World's Fair in 1830. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's kind of what that meant to showcase was sure it was an architectural feat but it was also this fantastic greenhouse right Mm -hmm. um but when you talk about vertical farming and the ability to condense agriculture inside of an enclosed system it's really uh it really only goes back a few years to uh call i believe colorado's uh enablement of the cannabis industry and this shift of indoor agriculture around that specific crop species that put a demand on the led manufacturers Mm-hmm. to make uh, an LED that can address the photo light spectrum uh, that is needed for photosynthesis. <laughs> and okay. so when they responded to that industry and got away from metal halide lights that were you know, really inefficiency, uh, inefficient lighting strategies, they were too hot to get close to the plants, and so you couldn't really layer them like you can with LED. Mm-hmm. Um, when, they d- when they introduced that technology, it really kind of spurred uh, a movement to to enable this condensed uh, controlled environment agriculture that otherwise was just kind of spread out among greenhouses. Mm-hmm. And greenhouses are great because they're taking this, uh, the sun as, as a uh, kind of a, a renewable energy source or an existing energy source and not having any inputs. But mm-hmm. what, they, what that benefits from in a greenhouse uh, gets superseded in a vertical farm by the ability to kind of control the uh, the the photo uh, reactive rates of species to increase the rate at which the plant grows. Mm-hmm. So whereas you sure in a greenhouse you might be using a free energy source, but you're still relying on that 12 hour on 12 hour off uh, time cycle. Mm-hmm. Whereas in a controlled environment, I can go room by room, floor by floor, uh, stack by stack, and I can have various species maturing at rates that enable me to be harvesting all the time. Mm-hmm. And so um, I think that there is a trade-off there, and in the big debate, it comes back to energy, which is kind of why I approach this from where I do, mm-hmm. is that you know energy is really kind of the argument 
um, on, on the favor of greenhouses and traditional agriculture to say vertical farming is so bad because it uses so much energy. Well, if you can tackle the energy side of things, you've mm. solved the majority of the problem. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so that's kind of that's kind of where we where we stand on that. But um, yes, the solutions have been here for a long time, uh, but they haven't been optimized like they're being optimized today. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much for your time. Yes, yeah. it's been a very interesting conversation, and uh, yeah, it's it's all very hopeful. Yeah, I'm very impressed with with the concept and, and I really hope that you do get the support and, and everything that you need to kind of move forward with this and, and achieve I, I your, your vision. I have to say, Chris, I'm a little jealous of the UK right now. You guys are, are adopting uh, hydrogen fuel cell buses and fuel cell vehicles at a far rest, faster rate than America is. Uh, and and one, of the, one of the specific uh, models I'm, I'm seeking is, is a Hyundai H350 van. Mm -hmm. uh, which was kind of uh, launched by uh, by Hyundai um, at an automotive show, and uh, there is there has been no mention of when that's coming to the U.S. So, right. um, if you if you happen to know anybody over there and you mm -hmm. want to uh, encourage them to bring more fuel cell vehicles to America, I will happily embrace them. And uh, <laughs> and that's you know that's one of the things that Seedling is going to try to do as well is to mm -hmm. have um, a public uh, hydrogen fueling station, mm -hmm. so we can kind of grow the hydrogen economy. Uh, mm. beyond the state of California through the rest of the country. So. Right, yep, yep, that sounds great. And yeah. uh, where can people find out more about uh, the work that you're doing? Absolutely. Um, the majority of our of our kind of social media activity is happening on Twitter these days, um, mm. at SeedlingPHL. Um, we are also on, on Facebook, and you can do at SeedlingPHL on there as well. Mm -hmm. uh, we've got a LinkedIn page, which is Seedling LLC. And then the website is www.seedling-phl.com. Okay, that's great. Well, thank you again for your time. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks for okay. Thanks for listening to the Food is Wasted podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode and learning about the work Travis is doing with seedling and pushing for a more sustainable alternative to conventional farming practices. Be sure to check out the website at seedling-phl.com if you want to find out more. If you'd like to learn more about the issue of food waste and the work being done by organizations like Seedling, then be sure to visit the Food is Wasted website at foodiswasted.com and sign up for the newsletter if you'd like to be kept informed of new articles, interviews, and initiatives. And of course, please subscribe to the podcast via iTunes or SoundCloud to ensure you get future episodes. And if you enjoyed this or other episodes, Please review and rate the podcast. It'll help greatly to get it heard by more people and for the stories of the people I interviewed to be exposed to a greater audience. If you're involved with a food waste-related initiative in any way and would like to be featured on the site or the podcast, then please get in touch with me via email at chris at foodiswasted.com. Take care and thanks again for listening.